Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? So... I've been teasing this topic for a while, but I figured today we would finally dive into the history of spy and surveillance balloons. We've heard a lot of talk about this in the news here in the United States this month as the U.S. military has shot down a couple of objects that were thought to be surveillance devices built by China, or perhaps in at least one case, an unidentified object that could have been a surveillance or spy balloon But uh, so we shot it down just to be on the safe side. But we're going to get to all of that. Now, before we talk about China, we need to talk about the history of using balloons and stuff like espionage and warfare. And that brings us to the beans. It brings us back to China. So the story goes that a Chinese military genius named Zhu Liang, and I apologize for my terrible pronunciation. uh, However, uh, he was known as Kong Ming used a paper lantern with a message written on it in order to call for help when enemy troops were surrounding his forces. This was one of the tactics he would use. And essentially, this sky lantern was a small hot air balloon. Uh, In fact, I should probably talk about how a hot air balloon works. Now, you've probably heard that hot air rises. But from another point of view, you really should say that, you know, colder air sinks. This is because warmer air is less dense than colder air. Cold air is more dense. So it settles and the warm air gets pushed up. You know, the dense cold air sinks down. The warmer air is pushed upward to float on top. And uh, it just kind of acts like that. It's a fluid, just as any fluids where you would deal with different densities, would do the same sort of thing, right? Well, if you have yourself a container that's light enough and you fill it with air that is warm enough, 
the whole of that container will become lighter than the air surrounding it, and it will rise. This is just a, a basic feature of fluid dynamics, y'all. So with a paper lantern made of thin material and a heat source that can be suspended inside the lantern, preferably held away from the walls of the lantern, or else you're just going to set fire to the lantern, you would have yourself a sky lantern. It needs to be closed off, obviously. If it's not, then the heat air is just going to rise straight through the lantern. So it needs to have a cap on the top. Lighting the lantern means a small fire heats the air inside the lantern to the point where the whole thing can rise up into the sky. And voila, you got yourself a potential signaling device. You can see it. It's lit up in the sky and you know generally where it's rising from, assuming that is that the folks that you're, you want to signal can actually see the lantern from their perspective or they're downwind of the lantern so that they have a chance to spot and or retrieve it if it has drifted away from where you released it. If the lantern floats in the wrong direction, you might find yourself without the benefit of reinforcements. Kong Ming lived around 200 uh, Common Era, and to this day, Sky lanterns are also known as Kongming lanterns in China. They have been popular in various festivals and celebrations, as can be seen in the documentary Tangled, when Rapunzel dreams of seeing them in person. Also, just a quick shout out to any Tech Stuff listeners who have been with this show long enough to remember when I would refer to works of fiction as documentaries. It has been quite some time. All right, but Sky lanterns are a long way from spy balloons, right? I mean, it would take centuries, a bunch of them, to get to a point where humans could turn to balloons for the purposes of observing others. That's because early uses of balloons for the purposes of seeing what the heck is going on over the hill over yonder would require a real human being to be lifted up into the sky. Because it's not like we had wireless sensors that could collect data and then beam information down to us. We didn't even have wired sensors that could do that. The sensors that we relied upon were mostly connected to one of the five traditionally associated with human beings. Heck, even the earliest weather balloon observations involved humans going up with basic stuff like thermometers and barometers to see what it's like up there in the wild blue yonder. According to the U.S. National Parks Service, the earliest recorded example of an observation balloon dates back to 1794 during the French Revolution. Uh, that's just a touch more than a decade after the Montgolfier brothers first wowed France with their experiments with hot air balloons. So the Montgolfiers built larger and larger balloons while experimenting with hot air as a means to achieve flight. Their earliest experiments just involved inflating a balloon, and there was no payload. That was probably a good thing, because one of those earlier experiments saw the anchor strings on the balloon break, and the balloon rose to around 600 feet in altitude, and there was no way to get down apart from it cooling off enough to descend. Because once the air cools down, it gets more dense, and if it gets dense enough, then it's no longer going to be buoyant in the surrounding atmosphere. It's going to come back down, right? So in 1783... Three important critters, actual living beings, took the very first hot air balloon flight to carry a living payload. Now, earlier experiments did include moments where strapping men who were holding on to anchor lines were lifted off their feet, but those don't really count. Like They weren't intended to go on a flight. They were intended to hold the balloon down while experiments were conducted, and occasionally they would be lifted up like a foot or two before they would either let go or the balloon would be pulled back down. The three critters that actually went on this maiden voyage were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Which sounds like the beginning of a joke, but no, these were suggested by King Louis XVI himself. Now, why he chose those particular three animals, I have no idea. I also don't know if Lou thought he was giving these animals a real treat, or if he wanted to punish them for some reason. There are so many unanswered questions in history. This balloon ascended to around 1,500 feet or so. It traveled about 10,000 feet until the air inside the balloon had cooled enough for the balloon to descend. It landed. The animals were all safe inside the wicker basket that was attached to the balloon. 
So they got out none the worse for wear. I mean, I don't know how they felt during the flight, but they were fine afterward. And not long after that, some brave pioneers in ballooning decided they would become the first humans to take flight in such a contraption. Now, at this stage, the balloons featured a sort of container that had portholes through which one could insert fuel into a brazier that was suspended above the wicker basket that could hold people. You know, that would be at the very base of the balloon. And it would be uh, right at the very bottom of the opening for the balloon itself, right? So you fill this brazier up with fuel and you set fire to it. It heats up the air. The balloon inflates and eventually becomes light enough to take flight. If you wanted to go higher, you put more fuel into the brazier. Or if you just wanted to stay in the air, you would put more fuel in because otherwise the fire would burn down and the the uh, the balloon would lose buoyancy and it would come down. Right. You could also cause the balloon to come down on purpose by introducing something that would slow down or stop the combustion, like pouring water through the porthole into the brazier to help extinguish the fire. This would allow the air to cool. And again, the balloon would come back down. These balloons were pretty risky. You know, a, a quick change in wind could potentially cause flames from this brazier to come into contact with the inner wall of the balloon itself, which could potentially mean that the balloon catches fire. Obviously, that would be disastrous. You would have an uncontrolled descent, a.k.a. a crash. And there was also no way to steer these balloons, so you were just subjected to the whims of the wind itself. So you might think, oh, we're going to go up, we'll travel a few thousand feet, and we'll come down in that field over there. But because of the wind, you're like, nope, we're coming down to the Louvre. Move over, Louis. It marked an incredible advance in science and technology. Even old Benjamin Franklin, fresh off his hardened glass harmonica tour, took note of the first hot air balloon flight while he was in France. Around this same time, other scientists and daredevils had come up with an alternative to hot air balloons because some gases are pretty light right? Like they're lighter than the surrounding atmosphere. Hydrogen, for example, is lighter than the air that we're walking around in. And so, thought the physicists, if you were to fill a balloon with a very light gas like hydrogen, that could also float on air. You wouldn't need a source of heat to heat up the gas. You would just need enough hydrogen to overcome the weight of the balloon itself but hydrogen comes with a couple of drawbacks. Uh, the big one is that it's very, very flammable. See also the tragedy of the Hindenburg disaster. But you wouldn't need or want an open flame anyway, because again, the gas you're using is lighter than air. There's no need to have a heat source to heat the air inside the balloon. Now, the same year that the Montgolfiers were launching hot air balloons, we got the first flight of a hydrogen balloon, and it carried a payload of about 20 pounds or around nine kilograms. And you might wonder, where the heck did they get hydrogen gas? Because hydrogen, while it is the most plentiful element in the galaxy, is also notorious for bonding with other elements like, you know, hydrogen and oxygen makes water. So you have to put forth real effort to break those molecular bonds to release hydrogen gas, and then you have to collect it. Well, the researchers were using scrap iron, and then they were pouring sulfuric acid onto the iron. One of the byproducts of the chemical reaction that would follow is hydrogen gas. They captured this with a system of lead pipes that fed into the interior of the balloon, and this allowed them to inflate the gosh darn thing. At the end of 1783, the Frenchies successfully flew a hydrogen-based balloon just a few days after the first successful hot air balloon flight. So these things are, are progressing in tandem. You know, it's really amazing how quickly this took off. That was a terrible, unintentional pun, which I'm sure I'm going to repeat throughout this episode. Anyway, unlike a hot air balloon... A lighter-than-air gas balloon doesn't need to constantly be refueled, so it just will stay up there for as long as the balloon is able to contain this lighter-than-air gas. So to, to be able to control things like altitude, the balloon would have ballast, 
That's bags of stuff that's used to weigh it down. So if you wanted to go higher, you had to ditch some ballast. You'd have to throw some weight overboard, like a sandbag or something. This would decrease the weight of the balloon and allow it to fly higher in altitude. But in order to come down, you would have to have a release valve that would let you have a controlled release. Controlled is the important part of hydrogen. You let out a little hydrogen, you lose some buoyancy, you start to come down. The more hydrogen you release, the more you come down. And if you're very careful, you're able to have a controlled descent and land without crashing. But, you know, when you have that flammable triangle where you've got fuel and oxidizer and heat, things get dangerous. So hydrogen is fuel with a a big, big F. And if the hydrogen were to catch fire, believe me, you would be well and truly effed. It wouldn't be so much a fire as it would be an explosion. We get back to the Hindenburg disaster there. But there were also other factors that contributed to that particular tragedy. Interestingly, the Hindenburg was not designed to use hydrogen gas in the first place. It was meant to use helium. Helium is also lighter than air. You know, we're all familiar with helium balloons. But unlike hydrogen, helium is not flammable. So it's safe to have in areas where you've got things like internal combustion engines and such. However, in the 1930s, the Hindenburg, which originated in Germany, wasn't able to import helium because, well, it's the 1930s, it's Germany, Nazis were in power, and even though World War II had not really started yet, and the United States certainly wasn't pulled into it, the U.S. was already, let's say, concerned about Germany and refused to export helium to the Germans. So instead, they used hydrogen, and thus the die was cast for the Hindenburg. The use of the hydrogen balloon also taught us that if you go to a high enough altitude, your ears go pop, and that can hurt. Also, researchers started to carry meteorological instruments like thermometers and barometers aboard the hydrogen balloons, so these became the first weather balloons of a sort, but they were manned. Unmanned weather balloons would have to wait nearly a century. So, by 1794, balloons were a known thing. And during the French Revolutionary Wars, in which countries like Britain and Austria went to war against France, largely because it's pretty scary to see these common French peasants overthrow the previously unassailable monarchy and the noble classes, the French military would use balloons to get a bird's eye view of the battlefield. I'll explain more when we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we had French military officials using balloons in order to get a high altitude view of areas like potential battlefields or even actual battlefield conditions, like active conditions during combat. It turned out that these uses were at best uh, distractions. They were not providing really useful info. Apparently the reports of the time said that they had no impact whatsoever on the course of battles. So early on, they had hardly any impact, but flash forward a little more than half a century and head on over to the United States. And we would see another use of observation balloons this time during the U S civil war. So you had the union and you had the Confederates and both sides of the conflict used balloons to gather observations of the enemy and to map out battlefields. So in this case, it wasn't necessarily during an actual battle, but sometimes it was just to get a really good bird's eye view of a battlefield, map out where units could take position, places that they should avoid, just conditions they need to be aware of before they go into battle so that they're not finding out while, you know, warfare is breaking out all around them. And it starts to make a little sense. And this was all in an effort to just provide intelligence to military units on the ground. Now, the Confederates had their share of military balloons, but the Union side historically made better use of this technology. Meanwhile, the Confederates were experimenting with submarines. It was a, a really scary time for military innovation because these were all, in many cases, unproven technologies where people were being put at risk in order to test them. Now, both sides used gas balloons for this purpose. They weren't using hot air balloons. They were using gas balloons. Uh, they tried using balloons to extend communication lines, but they found that the actual use of this was tricky. It was hard to read signals that were sent by balloonists. They were relying on things like signal flags, which could be difficult to see. Some of them were even outfitted with telegraph wires that extended down to the ground, but those ended up being a little fiddly as well. However, the idea was sound, even though the implementation was a bit lacking. Again, like this was all unfolding in the middle of a war, so it was tricky to get things to work just right while you're out in the field while it's all happening. The first weather balloons to carry instruments, but not people, would arrive in the 1890s back in France, where this whole business got started. Essentially, a century after balloons were first being used for surveillance in wartime conditions. These weather balloons had an open bottom, and they were gas balloons. And so when they would be released during the day, the lighter-than-air balloon would rise up into the sky. It would carry all these instruments that would record measurements. At night, 
the gases would cool down enough for the balloon to start deflating. Uh, you had air pressure that was forcing gases out and the balloon would start to come down. And the idea was to retrieve the instruments and record the readings as quickly as possible in order to track weather conditions. This was not always easy because the balloons had a tendency to drift sometimes by hundreds of miles. So sometimes the, the data you got back wasn't necessarily uh, the most useful. But not long after this, early meteorologists came up with a better plan. So instead of using an open-ended balloon where you know, you're essentially releasing a bag filled with light gas up into the sky, they would use a sealed balloon that was filled with lighter than air gas. They would release this balloon into the air. It would ascend up into the, the sky. And as the air around the balloon would get thinner at higher altitudes, the balloon would swell because there was less air pressure on the outside of the balloon than there was on the inside of the balloon at that altitude. You've probably seen pictures of balloons that looked incredibly spherical way up in altitude, but when they were first launched, they didn't look like that at all. Now, the material on these balloons was also really thin. These days, we make them out of latex. And because they're thin, this material is so thin, at higher altitudes, as the balloon stretches and stretches and stretches, as it swells up, it begins to tear. And when it tears, then the gas escapes the balloon and it starts to come tumbling down. Now, the meteorologists, they knew this was going to happen. So what they did was they attached a small parachute to the payload, to the instrument bundle, so that the parachute would deploy as the bundle was falling and then the payload could float down rather than crash down. And we still use weather balloons that use this method today, though obviously now we can include devices that send out a radio signal that make it way easier to track down where those instruments have landed once they do so. By the time you get to the early 20th century, balloons have become a common tool in militaries. They were in fact in heavy use in World War I among pretty much all the countries involved in the conflict. The potential for spies to use balloons to uncover enemy positions and battlefield conditions were enough to prompt the various militaries to target balloons with high priority. They, they became important targets for the military. This is also when balloons, often in the form of dirigibles like the Hindenburg, were used as weaponized vehicles. Some dirigibles had machine guns mounted within the cabin, uh, or they carried a payload of bombs. But that starts to get outside the surveillance and spy stuff, so I'm not going to spend any real time talking about that. That's a separate episode. Also in World War One and into World War II, some countries started to use what were called barrage balloons. Now, these were a defensive measure. So essentially, the idea was to attach steel cables to unmanned balloons. And if there was an incoming attack by air, you could release the balloons and they would go up into the air, lifting these cables up in the air. And the cables would serve as obstacles for enemy aircraft. Like you would just have these balloons holding taut cables still attached to the ground and aircraft, if they were to try and fly through the area, could get tangled up. They could, it could foul the aircraft and cause them to crash. Or it would force pilots to climb at a higher altitude to fly over these barrage balloons, but that would bring them within range of anti-aircraft weaponry. So it was all meant to dissuade aerial attacks. All right, but back to observation balloons. In the 1940s, General Mills, yep, the food company, the one famous for cereal, created balloons designed to ascend all the way up into the stratosphere. The aeronautical arm of General Mills, which is wild to think about, would use these balloons to lift instrumentation way, way, way up in the sky, typically to do stuff like study weather conditions and also detect radiation in the upper atmosphere. They used uh, essentially what was the, similar to a photographic plate where instead of using light to create an image, it was there to detect nuclear radiation that could hit the plate and create an image that we could then see once we retrieved this when it came back to the ground. So these balloons were not meant to spy on people. They were meant to make observations about weather and science, 
potentially detecting nuclear radiation, which could be you know, related to espionage or at least intelligence gathering. This whole thing was called Project Skyhook, and it fell under the administration of the Office of Naval Research in the United States, with the Atomic Energy Commission joining in a little bit later. These balloons would typically jettison their payload, which would then descend via parachute for retrieval by a ground team or a water team, as the case may be. And the work done there would then inform later espionage efforts. See, if you could send balloons way, way, way up into the sky, maybe you could do that so that they could potentially take photographs or film of the land that was beneath so that, you you know, you could get an idea where someone might be, I don't know, trying to hide nuclear silos in their country or military bases or whatnot. And so in the late 1940s and into the 1950s, the U.S. began to rely on balloons to lift surveillance payloads into high altitudes expressly for the purpose of photographing the then Soviet Union, as well as China, the two massive communist powers that the U.S. was convinced served as existential threats to truth, justice, and the American way. So the only way to really defend yourself is to snoop on them. Now, one early example of this was called Project Mogul, which technically started before Project Skyhook did with General Mills. But Mogul's purpose was to carry equipment designed to detect sound, but not just any sound. Instead, it was designed to detect sound that would come in the wake of the detonation of atomic bombs. The thought was an atomic bomb detonation would create sound that would travel in a channel high, high, high up in the atmosphere. So the U.S. was concerned that the Soviet Union was testing atomic weapons and they wanted to keep a, an ear out for that. And the U.S. had already demonstrated atomic weapons being extremely effective if you wanted to wipe out an entire city because they had done it twice already. By the way, balloons like the ones the U.S. released and the ones that China has released have a pretty huge overlap in the Venn diagram that has balloons in one circle and UFOs in the other circle. Like, a really big overlap. UFO stands for Unidentified Flying Object, and that's all that UFO actually means, right? Like, it literally means you see something that's in the air, and you can't figure out what it is, so it's a UFO. It's unidentified, it is flying, and it's something, an object. What UFO does not mean, at least it doesn't intrinsically mean, is that it's an extraterrestrial object. That is, that it's something that's not from Earth. But over the years, we've kind of conflated these two things, that UFOs and aliens are one and the same. Or rather, that UFOs are what aliens use to tool around in our solar system. But no, UFOs are just stuff what's up in the sky, but we ain't sure what it is yet. And when you look at balloons, especially weather or surveillance balloons, you can really understand how this can happen. Because I think a lot of people think, well, of course I know what a balloon looks like. I'm not going to mistake a balloon for something else. But at lower altitudes, these balloons are teardrop shaped, right? With the bulbous part of the tear at the top of the balloon. They look like they've been released prematurely, like, oh, you, you let go before you finished filling it up. It's not full of gas. This, however, is done on purpose because, as I mentioned earlier, as these balloons rise in altitude, they move into areas of lower air pressure and they expand. The balloons get bigger and bigger. So a balloon that's teardrop shaped at a low altitude turns into this enormous sphere as it climbs to upper altitudes. And like I said, it eventually can pop, or rather the material, again, typically latex, will tear and then release gas and cause the balloon to deflate quickly, or sometimes it'll just completely rip apart, and the stuff what the balloon was carrying comes crashing down. In 1947, a rancher named W.W. Mac Brazel was driving across his land with his son Vernon, and the two encountered something weird. They found a mass of fabric rubber, metallic foil, and some other stuff that was heaped on the ground. So the rancher collected as much of this stuff as he could, and then a few days later he drove it down to Roswell, New Mexico, to hand it over to the local sheriff. 
This innocent chain of events would eventually be reported as a rancher having salvaged the wreckage of a flying saucer. Now, the U.S. military thought maybe it was best to just let the flying saucer story go unchallenged, because the truth of the matter was the balloon was part of the aforementioned Project Mogul. But we were entering into an era of observations by balloon, and so there were a lot of UFOs that were out there. Not extraterrestrial, but unidentified by the people on the ground. And because the U.S. military didn't want to talk about espionage because... Despite what a certain James Bond would have you believe, it's best not to walk into a room and introduce yourself as a spy to everybody. Folks were left to fill in the gaps of their understanding with all sorts of speculation and nonsense. They weren't told that the U.S. was using balloons to try and keep tabs on the Soviet Union because the U.S. didn't want the Soviet Union to know that. So they were left to just kind of figure out what the heck this stuff was. Even when a Kentucky National Guard pilot, a military pilot, died in an accident in 1947 while he was trying to identify an object in the sky that was very likely an observation balloon, the military stayed silent on this because that was classified. Not even pilots were told that there there was a surveillance balloon program that was active. That kind of silence continues to this very day. All right, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll continue the history of spy balloons. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So we talked about Project Mogul, which was designed to listen in for the the evidence of atomic uh, weapon detonations. But for more direct observation, the U.S. created a couple of projects, one called Project Moby Dick and another one called Project Genetrix. These were balloons that carried cameras that were meant to gather intel, specifically on the Soviet Union and on China. And they would float at altitudes of more than 50,000 feet, which put them out of range of fighter aircraft at the time. Because it's pretty common for these aircraft not to have sort oxygen equipment. So they couldn't go at higher altitudes. Pilots would pass out. They wouldn't be able to breathe. So the idea was that these balloons would remain out of reach of Soviet forces, but they would still be able to take detailed photographs and film of the ground below. But you still had to retrieve the darn things. By the way, they would release these in various places around the world, like in Turkey, Norway, Scotland. And they would just let the air currents carry the balloons across the the Eastern Asian continent. Well, there were a couple of ways that the U.S. would try to retrieve these these uh, payloads once they had drifted across the USSR and China. One was just to wait until a payload released from its balloon parachuted into the Sea of Japan, whereupon a U.S. Navy vessel would rendezvous and pick up the payload. But the other was to use an aircraft to catch the payload as it was falling in midair. This aircraft was the C-119 Flying Boxcar. This uh, aircraft was used for tons of different stuff, including deploying airborne troops. So like Parachute Corps would jump out of C-119s. But this aircraft could also go long for a Hail Mary pass, which is my dumb way of saying they could be outfitted with equipment designed to snag a descending payload. But the Soviets caught on to these shenanigans. For one thing, in the early morning hours, these balloons would drift at a significantly lower altitude. Again, this is because the gas inside the balloons would cool down overnight. And as they cooled, they became more dense and they lost some of the balloon's buoyancy. Then they would float low enough for some Soviet aircraft to fire upon these these uh, uh, surveillance balloons. And so really just a fraction of the balloons launched were ever retrieved. I think they launched more than 500 of one of these, and I think around 50 were finally retrieved. So yeah, it was not great odds. The Soviets managed to get hold of some of the payloads and they said, hey, United States, stop violating our sovereignty by sending these spy balloons over our country. And the U.S. responded in a couple of different ways. One was to say, hey, easy, comrade. These are just weather balloons. We're just studying the weather, you know, all over the world to get a better idea how weather and climate patterns happen. No big deal. We can't even control where these things go. The other strategy was to say, hey, nobody owns the upper atmosphere. Airspace only extends as far up as you can use it. And you don't have any aircraft that can go that high. So go pound sand. As you can imagine, the Soviets didn't think either of these responses had very much merit to them, but the U.S. would end up migrating away from balloons as a main method of spying, not necessarily because balloons were ineffective, but because the United States had secretly developed aircraft, like fixed-wing aircraft that could fly at extreme altitudes, namely the U-2 spy plane. And for those of y'all interested in that story, I recommend searching the Tech Stuff archives for our old episodes about the U-2. Because that story is crazy all on its own. Also, by the late 1950s, we start getting into the space age. Sputnik was the first man-made satellite to go into orbit. It was launched on October 4th, 1957. It essentially just went beep, sent out a little radio signal as it moved through its orbital pattern. But this still had an enormous impact around the world. Uh, for one thing, folks in the United States became terrified because... If the USSR could launch a payload into space, then they could potentially launch a nuclear weapon at the United States aboard an intercontinental ballistic missile. And America suddenly felt a threat that earlier 
had been hard for them to really imagine because otherwise the thought was they would have to fly nuclear payloads over in bomber aircraft, which could be intercepted between the USSR and the United States. Now there was this very real threat of things being delivered via missile. But in addition to this fun source of existential dread, there was also the concern that should you create a satellite that was capable of maintaining orbit for a while and you outfit it with the right kinds of equipment, it would pass over the Earth in arcs that could gather information using stuff like powerful cameras. You could spy on other countries well beyond even the stratosphere. And sure, at first we would need to be able to retrieve the payloads of these satellites. They wouldn't be designed to stay up there perpetually. They would come down and we would have to retrieve them in order to get the information that was captured. But over time, we'd be able to maintain a live connection with these satellites. So we were entering the era of satellite surveillance. However, balloons would continue to remain useful. For one thing, you could deploy balloons pretty quickly. Whereas with satellites, there's a whole lot of prep work that goes into it. Even if you want to divert a satellite, that's not always possible. And when it is, it's not always easy. So sometimes you need to have an alternative that you can use quickly. Also, balloons remain useful because folks expect higher tech approaches to surveillance. America used helium balloons carrying cameras, both infrared and visible light video cameras, to surveil Iraq nearly 20 years ago, around 2004. The U.S. also made similar use of observation balloons over Afghanistan during that extremely long war. Okay. So we get to the point now where surveillance balloons can be more sophisticated, right? You can have a surveillance balloon that has a perpetual radio connection back to a control point. So you can get real-time data from these surveillance balloons. It's no longer let it go, hope that you can retrieve it later, and then get to the data then. Now we can have a perpetual signal. When you pair it with stuff like solar panels then the balloon's payload can continue to draw power from solar power and be in action longer. These are things that were not possible, you know, obviously early on in the, the use of spy balloons. But now let's get to the Chinese balloon that got us started on this whole topic. On January 28th, 2023, the North American Aerospace Defense Command which is a part of a U.S. military organization, detects and begins to track a balloon that's drifting over Alaska, which is in the northwest of the United States. It borders Canada. It is not part of the contiguous U.S. At the time, the agency determined that there was no risk from the balloon, either from physical threats or from surveillance. So the agency decided to just continue tracking it. There was, since it didn't, stand as a threat, there was no reason to intervene at that moment. On January 30th, the balloon drifted over into Canadian airspace. NORAD kept eyes on the balloon, and experts determined that based upon the fact the balloon had solar panels to power its payload, the balloon's purpose was likely to gather intelligence. It was most likely a spy balloon. They also saw that the balloon appeared to be outfitted with propellers and motors, indicating that it could be radio controlled to direct its flight. So it could at least move in areas that uh, were not just determined by air currents. On January 31st, 2023, the balloon passed out of Canadian airspace and back over into U.S. airspace. This time it was over Idaho. And it's at this point that the U.S. President Joe Biden ordered the military to shoot down the balloon. The military decided it was best to shoot down the balloon when it wasn't over a populated area, both to minimize the chance for damage to citizens and citizen property, as well as to increase the chances that the military would be able to retrieve the payload. Plus, at the time, the balloon was not passing over any really uh, uh, secret bases or anything or military operations, so... They were thinking, if it's over Idaho and it's not over something sensitive, we can let it be for now and wait for it to move over to a place where we can take it down safely. In the meantime, the military continued to track the progress of the balloon and started to make proactive decisions to prevent it from being able to gather any useful intelligence. They would 
postpone or cancel things that would potentially get picked up by the balloon. They curtailed all unencrypted communication so that the balloon wouldn't be able to pick up on radio communications between military units that might give some sensitive information to the Chinese. They were minimizing the amount of information that this balloon could potentially snoop in on and send back to China. The next couple of days had the U.S. tracking the balloon. Some folks on the conservative side of the political spectrum began to criticize the Biden administration for not taking action already. Uh, They didn't have all the information, though. Personally, I think trying to avoid having debris hit citizens is a worthwhile endeavor. But then what do I know? Anyway, by Friday, February 3rd, China had actually owned up to having launched this balloon, but China was claiming that it was essentially a weather balloon that just got blown off course, that this was not intended to fly into U.S. airspace and, in fact, was part of a scientific uh, operation. And the fact that it was outfitted with propellers and motors kind of contradicted that claim a bit. And the U.S. said, no, 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 we are not buying it. Because we use that same excuse with the Soviets back in the 50s, and we know it's a lie, because we lied back then. And further, the U.S. said this was a violation of its sovereignty. Also, interesting side note, when it comes to airspace, we actually do not have a firm international agreement on the vertical limitations of airspace. Like, we know how far out it extends from a country, but we don't know how far up it extends. At least we don't agree on that. And this gets complicated because stuff like satellites obviously can cross the entire planet many times in a day. Like some do a full orbit in like 90 minutes. So if you had to request permission to cross over the areas that a satellite was traveling around, that would be impractical. So we're kind of in a murky area here. Well, on Saturday, February 4th, an F-22 stealth fighter, one of the most advanced fighter jets in the world, takes off from Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, flies to an area off the coast of South Carolina, and it fires an AIM-9X Sidewinder air-to-air missile at this balloon, which at that point was at an altitude of between 60,000 and 65,000 feet. Needless to say, the balloon did not survive this encounter with a missile. The wreckage fell into an area that's about six miles off the coast of South Carolina, This is well within the 12 miles of territorial waters, so this still makes it a U.S.-based operation. The U.S. still has sovereignty over that water. The Department of Defense issues a statement that reassures U.S. citizens that the balloon never posed any sort of physical threat, so it wasn't carrying a weapons payload, but that it did violate U.S. sovereignty. Further review of earlier intelligence then revealed that China had flown balloons over the U.S. at least four times in the recent past that were not intercepted or taken down. Three of those incidents happened while Trump was president. One happened earlier in Biden's presidency. On February 10th, 2023, the U.S. shot down a quote-unquote high-altitude object off the coast of Alaska. Now, at the time, the U.S. wasn't sure if it was, in fact, a balloon, let alone where it came from. Further investigation indicated that this particular object was from, quote, commercial or research entities and therefore totally benign, end quote. That's according to the White House. So in other words, they shot down a balloon that was not intended to be used for surveillance, but was for some other purpose. And you might say this whole balloon thing is kind of taken off (laughs) and that the military reaction has similarly been on an upward trajectory. Dad jokes. The Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, a hobbyist group that sends up helium balloons with small payloads, this sort of pico balloon approach, uh, just to do stuff like gather data, which can end up being things like to help with weather models. Uh, They can take photos, high altitude photos. It's really meant to be a science based hobby. And there are like websites out there that will sell you the kits that and the and the balloons that you can use to launch these sorts of things. Anyway, this hobbyist group reported that one of its balloons was quote-unquote missing in action. Further, it reported that the last known location was over Alaska, and that on February 11th, an F-22 jet shot down an unidentified airborne object in that general vicinity. So the implication is that the U.S. military, in what is perhaps an overabundance of caution, or you could argue 
paranoia, shot down a hobbyist weather balloon. Now, according to weatherboy.com, the balloon probably costs somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 bucks, and the payload was also probably around that same amount of money. Now, I do not know what the F-22 used to take down this particular unidentified object, nor can I even say that the F-22 actually shot down the hobbyist balloon. These could be two separate events. That They may not be the hobbyist balloon that this F-22 took down. It could just be coincidence. However, what I can say is that a single Sidewinder missile costs nearly $400,000. So it's tempting for me to joke that the United States wasted a $400,000 weapon to take down a $12 helium balloon carrying a similarly priced hobbyist payload. But we do not know that for certain. I do not know that the object that the F-22 shot down was this hobbyist balloon. I don't know what method the pilot used to take down the object. Maybe they didn't use a Sidewinder missile at all. So I cannot really be as irresponsible as to joke about it. But boy, do I really want to. So surveillance balloons are still very much a thing. But so are balloons meant to make scientific observations and to increase our understanding of how the world and beyond works. This creates a complicated issue, right? How do you determine if a balloon stands as a threat to intelligence or is just there to further our knowledge? There aren't really easy answers to this. The more you know about the origins of the balloon, the more the more you can guess at the intent for that balloon. And I think that's really what you have to rely upon. But at the same time, you know, if you don't act, well, then you get criticized, right? Because we saw that happen with the first balloon back earlier in February, that if you don't act, you stand uh, at risk of being criticized by the opposition for failing to take the safety of U the United States seriously. However, if you act prematurely, then you get criticized of being trigger happy and shooting down legitimate scientific oriented equipment. It, it, it turns into a no win situation, right? You act too quickly and you're seen as being irresponsible and paranoid. You don't act quickly enough. You're criticized of not taking security seriously. I don't really have an answer for how we solve this issue. It is a really difficult one to do. It might even be one of China's uh, objectives, right? Like not just to gather surveillance, but to create this kind of environment where the current administration really has a, a no-win situation on their hands. They get criticized no matter what they do or don't do in the case of waiting. So, yeah. Complicated thing. I don't think we're going to see surveillance balloons go away too soon because, again, they can be effective, even if it's just a form of psychological warfare. But I thought this would be an interesting topic. Hope you agree. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in the future of this show, reach out to me and let me know. You can go on Twitter, tweet at me. The show's handle is TechStuffHSW. Or you can download the iHeartRadio app, navigate over to the Tech Stuff page by using the little search tool, hit that little microphone icon, leave me a voice message up to 30 seconds in length, let me know what you would like to hear, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 